God, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for your church, and I, I wish that every person in this room could experience the beauty of being part of your body in the way that I have, in the way that my family has, and so I pray that you would give us all an opportunity to experience that, the love and the joy and the comfort that comes from being just having our arms our bodies be wrapped around in arms from people who love us, Lord. And we thank you for that tangible expression of your grace and your love. And so we do worship you for your body. And Lord, we, we look at the church and sometimes we know that this can't be all that it is. We, we see in your word something so spectacular and we wonder why it's not always like that. But we thank you for the ways in which your church foreshadows what it will be like to live in your kingdom amongst your people, to be glorying in your presence all the time to be worshiping you and loving one another. And so I pray that you would bring a greater degree of that experience here now through Maricopa Springs. And I do thank you for the people in this room. Lord, would you continue to minister to them and through them? Would your Holy Spirit work and move among us? Would you, would you grow this church in depth and knowledge of understanding of your love and your grace? Would you give us a passion for your word? Would you give us a heart to be on this mission that you have to seek and save the lost? So, Lord, we just, we just lay praise and thanks at your feet for the church that you've made and what it is that you do through it. In your son's precious name, amen. Well, I would love for you to turn to 2 Timothy 3. We're doing this topical series, and so I'll be kind of all over the place, but I'm going to direct you to two different places. 2 Timothy chapter 3 is where I'm going to start. You know, I mentioned that um, when I say stupid things when I don't write them down, and I don't know about you, but there's few things in life that bother me more than unclear communication. Can you relate to this at all? Like, People ask me, did you watch any of the debates? And I, I said, no, because I just cannot stand to like, listen to communication that is not clear. And in some sense, you could say that I sort of make my living as a communicator. That's kind of a big part of what I do. So the spoken word and the written word clearly and plainly communicated well is something that I value with very high regard. If I pick up a book and by the second chapter, I don't really know what the author is talking about, I don't finish the book. But this is one of the reasons why I treasure the Bible so much, because it is God's written and spoken word to us. Through it, he communicates to us, and he does so with clarity so that we might actually know God without confusion. And as we press on in this series, How to Build a Church, this morning our subject matter is the Bible, Scripture. And in order for the church to exist and thrive, the church has to stand on the word of God. You, you probably don't follow what's happening in Europe right now or in England when it comes to religion. But churches have abandoned the word of God so that they can appeal more to culture. And where the Bible has been abandoned, rather than people come flocking into the doors, do you know what's happened? The churches have dissipated. And so they thought that by getting rid of the Bible, they would appeal more to people, and instead they've disappeared. And I really can't emphasize enough how important this is. All around the world, people are guessing as to what this life means. Maybe you've encountered some of these people. You work with them. You cross paths with them. What, what's the purpose of humanity? How do people go about living their lives? Most people are just guessing at those questions. But as Christians, we don't guess. We don't guess. 
Like a wise man who builds his house on a solid foundation of bedrock, we stand firm on the truth of God's word, which he has faithfully communicated to us so that we might know him. So we're going to consider the importance of the Bible this morning. We're going to do that from two different angles. I don't normally like structure my messages like this, so I hope it's clear after I just said that. But we're going to look at it from two different angles, okay? First, we're going to see that we have the Bible because of God's incredible faithfulness to us. The Bible that you hold in your hand, it is actual tangible proof of the character of our God, that he is faithful to us. And then, in response to God's faithfulness to us, we have to talk about our responsibility to God. As a result of his faithfulness, what is our responsibility? So to say it another way, God has faithfully communicated his word clearly to us, therefore we must be faithful to receive it, okay? And like I said, I don't normally do this. I'm going to get old school on you. I'm going to do something I rarely ever do. I'm going to do the classic pastor move where I'm going to outline this with three Ps, okay? If you're taking notes, ready? Proclamation, perspicuity, and preservation. Proclamation, I know, you don't know what any of those mean. That's why you're here. Yeah, some of you want me to spell them, right? Proclamation, perspicuity, and preservation. I promise it'll be clear by the time I get to the end, okay? God has showed himself faithful to us in the proclamation of his word the perspicuity of his word, and the preservation of his word, okay? Maybe you want me to skip to perspicuity. I'll get there. Just hang on. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. We find these incredibly important words, words that probably every Christian at some point in their life should have memorized. It says, verse 16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The book that we call the Bible, it's not just any old book. It has been breathed out by God himself. It is the only book in the history of humanity that's been proclaimed by the mouth of God himself. Gather every book that has ever been written in the history of mankind All the collected knowledge of all the brilliant people throughout all of history, all of the scholarly research, all of the scientific study, all of the labor to understand humanity and the cosmos. Read all of those books combined, if you could, in a lifetime, and you would not find even the shred of wisdom contained on just one page of this book. Do you understand? Because none of those books have been breathed out by God. People and their musings and the books that they write about their discoveries, they can tell us some wonderful things about the world, some very true things, I would even say. But only God can proclaim to us the things that are profitable for training in righteousness because only God can tell us about himself in ways that we could never understand apart from him speaking it to us. Paul tells Timothy that this book is the proclamation of God so that by knowing it, the Christian might be complete, complete. That means that through this book, we have the ability to know God, to hear his voice, to see his face, to be filled with the spirit of God that reveals to us these things that God has proclaimed. And from page one 
of this very special book, we see God speak. He says, let there be light, and there is. And the power of his words create light and darkness. And then God speaks to Adam and Eve, and he gives them dominion over his creation. God speaks to Noah, and he makes a promise to them through the rainbow that he will never flood the world again. God speaks to Abraham, and he enters into a covenant with Abraham. God speaks to Moses, and he gives him the law. God speaks to the prophets and commissions them to call his people to repentance and faithfulness. And God speaks over his son Jesus and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we believe in a God who speaks so that we might know who he is. Our God proclaims his word not so that we can have rules and religions that we, rules and religion that we feel obligated to live by, but so that we might see him and know him and come to love him. In Ezekiel 12, we find these words. It says, For I am the Lord. I will speak the word that I will speak, and it will be performed. No longer will it be delayed, but in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. He proclaims it, and he performs it to perfection. And all that God proclaims comes to pass, and no sound in all of creation can equal his voice in power or beauty. And God proclaims his word for the benefit of his people, for your benefit, for my benefit, that we might know his character, see his glory, and obey his will, that we might be complete through what he has said, equipped for every good work. In 1 Peter, we hear this admonition regarding the word of God that he's proclaimed. It says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so this is the one book that has the power to bring light into the darkness. It is not a book that was conceived by men, and I think I've said this before. I mean, when you read it, you get this sneaking suspicion that this is not something that people would choose to write. Rather, these are the very words of God himself, which he spoke through the Holy Spirit, who is God himself. And so at this point, I, I really have to ask, I mean, look at this tiny book. Come over to my house and see the shelves of books that I have and compare it to this tiny book. How well do you know this book? Contained in this short little book is everything that God has proclaimed that we must know. How well do you know it then? I'm sure that your mind is filled with all kinds of wonderful, helpful knowledge, but is it full with the words of God as well? Little else matters in this life. I mean, you could forget all the math that you know as long as you knew this book and you would still be fine, especially as long as you have your calculator on your phone in your pocket, right? (laughs) But truly, little else matters. And I'm amazed at how many books Christians read and yet how little we read God's Word. We read the books about God's word when we could go right to the source material itself and read it. 
And I love books. Don't get me wrong. Books are great. You guys gave me books. I'm so excited to open that up. I almost did, like, while I was standing up here. Books are truly one of my favorite things, but in the end, there is only one book that really matters. It is the book that God has proclaimed so that we might be a people who know who he is. Well, maybe you would say to me then, Grady, well, my mind would be filled with all of this wisdom that the Bible contains, but I just don't understand it. I'm not sure what it means. Well, I would venture that you feel that way because your lack of understanding really is just a lack of effort. And I think you may have failed to grasp a very simple and a very important point of Christian doctrine, which is the perspicuity of Scripture. You're like, no wonder I didn't grasp it. I'd never even heard that word before. I will teach you what perspicuity means, and I promise you will never forget it again. Ready? Perspicuity means clarity, which is easy to remember because it's the most unclear word. It's a word that fails to accomplish what it means. I'll use it in a sentence. If you want to communicate clearly, don't use the word perspicuity. So perspicuity means clarity, which is totally unclear. But in Psalm 119, a great and wonderful psalm, I mean, if there was like an application point that I had for you, it would be to go home and read Psalm 119 this week. In Psalm 119, flip there actually, because I'm going to reference two different parts of it. Psalm 119, in verse 130, it says this. I'm going to wait. I love the sound of the pages flipping. It pleases me. Yes, or the fingers scrolling. <laughs> Psalm 119, verse 130. It says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Look, there are some things in Scripture that are hard to understand, and it can be helpful to have teachers and scholars and people who know more than us, who've come before us, great thinkers, who've offered their commentary and their explanation of these things. But my four-year-old children can understand the essential message of the Bible. The story about a shepherd who loves his sheep so much that when one of them got lost and went astray, he left the others to go and find it to bring it home. The story about the prodigal son who says mean things to his father and goes off and squanders his inheritance only to regret his decision and decide to come home thinking that his father will be mad at him but instead he finds his father waiting for him with open arms overjoyed that his son decided to return with willingness to forgive his son for the ways that he wronged him. Or the story about a man who lived a sinless life who was the son of God who for the love of his friends gave his life for them so that they might be saved from death. I mean, these are stories for simple people like us, aren't they? Stories, again, that even a four-year-old can grasp. I love Doug's conversion story. I'm going to steal it, Doug. As a young man, Doug hears the verse, John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. And that was all it took, right, Doug? 
Oh, he heard this simple and clear message about an enduring peace that the world cannot afford to anyone, and his heart was changed because of a desire to know that peace. And God has radically altered his life from that moment on. And there are many deep theological ideas that God reveals to us in Scripture, and we can have all kinds of fun discussing those things together. And I think that's wonderful for us to explore those ideas. But at the end of the day, the Word of God has perspicuity. It has a simple clarity so that even the simple like me can understand the message. Man is sinful. God is gracious. Through the death and resurrection of Christ, we can be saved. And how good of our faithful God to give us such great hope through such a simple message. It's really not complicated. Psalm 119, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. But maybe you wonder, like a good little product of the enlightenment, like we all probably are, how do we know this is the Word of God? What proof do we have that it's been preserved? What empirical evidence is there that the book that I hold in my hands is the actual proclamation of God? Well, believe it or not, you're not the first person to ask that question. You're just one more skeptic in a long line of them that go all the way back to Adam and Eve who said, did God really say and yet for all of the doubts all throughout human history, the Christian faith remains, and God's faithfulness has been proven through the preservation of his word. God has accurately preserved the Bible throughout history. I've got all kinds of articles and scholarly materials that I could send you if you're really curious about this. You're welcome to email me, or you could attend our next adult Sunday school class that's going to tackle this question for like six weeks. More information coming, but they're going to study this together. But for our purposes here, since we don't have all day, let me just mention a couple of things quickly, okay? The biggest reason why we believe that God has preserved his word is because the Bible says that God has preserved his word, which I think is the best argument there is. The character of God is true and faithful. In Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11, we find these words. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it, God says. Echoing these words in Matthew 24, verse 35, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And the primary reason why the Christian believes that the word of God is the word of God himself, that his promises are true, is because he says that his word will never pass away. Is there a better guarantee than that? I mean, does that trump a scholar saying, yeah, we think that this is pretty much the word of God? No, of course not. God himself declares that he has an enduring purpose for his word, and God will see to it that until the end of time, his word is preserved and proclaimed so that people might know him. And that alone should be enough for us as believers to have faith that the Bible that we hold in our hands is the true and actual word of God. But let me give you just a couple other pieces of evidence, okay? 
1947, a nomadic shepherd in the Middle East discovered a series of caves, and inside of those caves were a number of ancient manuscripts that he stumbled across. Today, these manuscripts are called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Maybe you've heard of them. You need to understand that up until this point in history, the oldest documents that we had of Scripture were copies of copies of copies that were dated around 1000 A.D., a thousand years after Jesus. And when these manuscripts that he found in the cave were scrutinized and studied by scholars, they were revealed to be Old Testament manuscripts from around the time of Jesus. Zero A.D., a thousand years older than the best manuscripts that scholars had in 1947. Are you tracking with me? Okay. These documents from 1,000, these documents from zero. It was an incredible discovery. And let me zero in on just one of these manuscripts. I could talk about many of them, but the great Isaiah scroll was the one that the scholars were just thrilled to have in their hands. It is a complete copy of the Old Testament book of Isaiah, 900 years older than the best copy that scholars had prior. And you know what scholars found when they laid that scroll out right next to the best copy from 1000 AD and the next, or this, this new manuscript that they had found in the caves from around 100 AD? Do you know what they found? These two, two copies that were written 900 years apart, they matched exactly. Literally, letter for letter, an exact copy of the document which shows that in 900 years, not a single change or edit had been made to the book of Isaiah in the Bible that you have in your hands. And this is an amazing fact, considering that every copy that we have of the Bible had to be painstakingly written letter by letter by a scribe, because there were no printing presses. But you may be surprised, and yet we shouldn't be surprised, right? We shouldn't be surprised at all by the accuracy of these two different scrolls because God said he would preserve his word. When it comes to the New Testament, again, there's all kinds of information I could give you here. I'm going to try and just be brief. When it comes to the New Testament, we have more than 10,000 manuscripts of the New Testament text, bits and pieces of different books and different letters and different copies. In addition to that, we have more than one million quotations from the New Testament by authors who were writing in the first few hundred years after the New Testament was initially written down. Um, Over a million quotations. These were copies that were, or quotations and copies that were made, different geographical areas, different points of time for the first few hundred years after the Bible was written all over the Roman world. And did you know that with these different documents written at different times, copied, I should say, at different times by different people in different locations, there's more than a 99% agreement between the 1 million quotations and the 10,000 copies of the New Testament. Now, you may say, oh my goodness, but there's a 1% difference. It's actually less than 1%. But did you know that less than 1% is essentially just spelling variances of different words? That's essentially all the difference there is. Now, again, we shouldn't be surprised by that fact at all because God himself has been faithful to preserve his word. What else would we expect? 
Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And the textual accuracy of the Bible, it drives secular scholars crazy because they cannot with any credibility say that modern Bible translations that you have in your hands are any different than what the biblical authors themselves wrote. They would love to do it, but they can't. They would love to tell the world that the Bible's corrupted and full of errors, but there's not a single other book in history like it that is this accurate. They cannot discredit it as much as they would love to. And so how good is our God that he proclaimed his word so that we might know it, that he did it with perspicuity and clarity so that we might understand it, and he preserved it throughout history so that we might have confidence in its truth and its accuracy. Okay, now I think all of this work on God's part demands a little bit of effort and response on our part, doesn't it? Because God has been faithful to proclaim his word clearly and preserve it through history, we have a responsibility regarding this book, the Bible. So here's this. Again, I'm going to give it to you old school. Our job is to learn it, to live it, and to love it. To learn it, to live it, and to love it. When it comes to learning Scripture, I think it is honestly unacceptable how little time and effort Christians put into learning God's Word. It's just not acceptable. All that God wants to say to us is contained in this little book. All of the mysteries that God intends to reveal for us in this life, the truth about salvation, creation, resurrection, prophecy, every important thing that God wants us to know can be found in the pages of this book. And yet, in, instead of truly building our lives on this book, do you know what I often hear people who say they're Christians say? They say things like this, well, I know what the Bible says, but I think... Or I know what God says about this, but I believe, or I feel, okay, those are phrases that should never roll off the lips of a Christian. I know what the Bible says, but, there's no but. It is not our place to try and improve the word of God based on our thoughts or our feelings. It's not our responsibility to edit God's word. It is our responsibility to learn it with accuracy. Acts 17.11 is a wonderful example of this. It says this, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The backstory of this verse is that Paul and his companion Silas they had brought the good news of Jesus to the Jews in Thessalonica, and their message was not very well received. And these Jews, rather than search the scriptures to see if what Paul was claiming was true based on God's word, these Jews, they just got angry. And they chased Paul and Silas out of town, threatening them. So Paul and Silas, they leave Thessalonica, they travel to Berea, they enter the Jewish synagogue there, and they tell the Jews about the good news of Jesus, the Messiah that every Jew has been waiting for. And these Jews, rather than respond with threatening messages, or rather than respond by saying, well, I don't feel like God would make the Messiah be a poor guy from the ghetto of Nazareth. 
these noble Jews, they opened up God's word to see what the scriptures communicated about the Messiah, to look for themselves at what God's word proclaimed. And this is our responsibility as Christians, to faithfully learn the word of God. God has gone through all of the effort to speak his word, to make it clear for us to understand and to preserve it through history. And so don't you think it's important then for us as Christians to learn what it says? As we build the church here in Maricopa, isn't that essential? And yet it's not enough to just learn what the Bible says, okay? Because there are many people who know what God's word says, but they choose not to live by it. And that's another issue entirely. We have to add to our understanding, to our learning, a commitment to actually do the Word of God, to live it out. In order to build a church, in order to truly call ourselves Christians even, I think, to prove the validity of the saving faith that we have received by grace, we have to obey Scripture. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, think about this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the proof of our love for God is our obedience to his word. Now, what typically happens, this is, this is tough for me because, again, I was talking with my mentor about this even this week. We have selective obedience, don't we? We obey the parts that we like. We obey the parts that are easy. We pat ourselves on the back for our good and righteous living while we ignore the parts that are difficult, the parts we maybe disagree with or the parts that we don't like. We selectively obey God's word based on our preferences. And yet the book of James tells us that if we violate God's word on even one point, we are guilty of breaking all of the commandments of God. And so the Christian doesn't have the right to selectively obey parts of Scripture while choosing then to ignore others. Either we love Christ and we seek to obey Him in everything, or we don't love Him. Okay, now there's unlimited grace for those who, like me, fail in their obedience and seek repentance. There's grace. But there's no excuse for claiming to love Jesus and not at least fighting, struggling, wrestling to live out God's word every day. Either we love Christ and we seek to obey him in everything, or we don't love him. And this is really what it comes down to, I think. Love for God and his word. Again, I really encourage you, go read Psalm 119 this week. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It may take you a couple of days. But it's all about the beauty and the importance of God's word. If you're still there in Psalm 119, look at verse 97 with me. Psalm 119, starting in verse 97. It says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. 
How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. For the Bible, or for the Christian, the Bible is not just a set of commands. It's not just an academic book for us to study. It is actually sweeter than honey. It's a window through which we gaze upon the excellencies of Christ himself. It's a divinely spoken book that stirs our hearts with affection for God. We savor it. We taste and see that the Lord is good. We meditate on it so that it forms every aspect of our lives. We see in Scripture a pathway to righteousness and the hope of the resurrection. We find in this book hope eternal and the beautiful words that God has graciously proclaimed to us. And so Christians, we're not a people who guess. We are a people who hear the voice of God as it's been proclaimed to us through the scriptures he has given us. And so we learn it, we live it, and we love it. And what's the very essence of his message? Let me end with this this morning. Before I close with that, we're going to do communion. And so I invite our worship team to come forward. Let me just explain how this works and then I'll lead us into that. As our team is up here and they sing and they lead through this next song, which I invite you to sing, it's a song about God's word. Uh, We're going to have the communion elements get passed around the room. They're going to come by on the tray and so you can take a a cracker and a cup of juice and you can just hold it until I come back up here to walk us through communion together. And I would just ask, like I usually do, if you have not made a public profession of faith, if Jesus is not your Lord, if you've not chosen to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then for your sake, I ask you, please, just let the plate slide by. Nobody will will judge you or shame you for that. We're super glad that you're here but communion is for those of us who call Christ Lord. Now, I'm sure that you know what is at the heart of the message that God proclaims in the Bible, but let me just remind you. The core of this message is unfettered affection. God in frail flesh, Christ on the cross, and the fact of the resurrection proclaimed to us in stunning truth That though we have rebelled against him, God loves us still. And no man has greater love than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. But God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the word of God tells us that we have fallen far short of God's expectation. We have failed to achieve the glory of God. But God in his grace and his mercy has sent his son Not to condemn the world, but to save us from our sins so that we might be found in Christ because God loves us. And the word of God and communion both, they remind us what the essential message of the Bible is, don't they? The clear and simple truth. Christ died and gave his life for me. Christ gave his body and his blood so that I might receive eternal life.